you've had a very interesting, adventurous life, to say the least. Uh, a lot of boys probably think about or dream about driving cars and becoming a racing driver, but you actually went and did it. So can you tell me a bit about what made you different to actually say, I'm not just going to think about, you know, this very adventurous and competitive career, but I'm actually going to go and do it. What what was it that, that gave you that little bit extra or, or were you just someone who went for things, you know, naturally? I think I'm somebody who innately goes for things. Okay. Um, if I think it's a good idea, then I'll be doing it. And if there are barriers in front of making the idea happen, then the next job is to remove those barriers. Mm. And my approach to pretty much everything is to either smash through the barriers, dig under them, go around them, go over them, but whatever it is, find a way through the barrier. And that can be, that certainly was the case in my motor racing career, and it's certainly been the case in any businesses that I've run or business ideas that I've had. Mm. It's, and I, I always, I don't do this deliberately, I really don't, but there are certain things that attract me and it's not always the normal path because I, I kind of often find things a little bit dull. However, if I find something, the idea of something exciting, then it has my 100% focus. And I don't mean to sound big-headed, but I, I, I know that I've got a number of attributes and focus and determination is very high on that list. I've also got a lot of negatives, believe me, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 there, but there are a couple of them. Um, so what, what's, uh, what's your advice then? <laughs> you're assuming, I said, what are your vices then? You're, you're, you're an athlete, so I'm assuming you don't smoke. Uh, well, actually I do. I, oh. this, is how this is how dedicated I am. I started smoking to try and get cigarette sponsorship. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You know something? It never worked. <laughs> All the guys out there that had cigarette sponsorship and they didn't smoke, and there was me supporting their industry and they <laughs> didn't give me a dime. <laughs> but it wasn't meant to be. The excitement wasn't there, you see. You were doing it for the wrong reasons. You weren't exactly you weren't mentally a hundred percent behind it. Yeah. I think the some of the downsides is that easier life if I'd set my sights a little bit lower but mm. that has no interest to me yeah so I would probably rather endure the struggles but one of the things I would say to anybody uh, mm. who is starting a business with any particular vision is that that's fantastic and if they are equally determined and focused that is going to be completely needed but the number one thing that they will completely need to understand and be able to live with are huge disappointments. Mm, tell me about and it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that that's where, let's say, those that have a, a dream to yeah. become top of an elite sport, or whether it be a top artist, or whether it be a top actor, or whatever, you, you slowly see this pool of contestants, of those who have maybe some ability and then those who have real ability but it dwindles because sometimes people cannot continue the path of suffering continued disappointment and it does make me 
wryly smile sometimes when one sees on the X Factor a 19-year-old saying, but Simon, this is my last chance. And you think, well, if you think that at 19, you're never going to succeed because it's not your last chance. It's a question of work, application, and finding a way through those barriers and also working on the talent that is driving you to get there. So one of the things I've often coached my own kids with or friends is that I'm adamant that there are actually two careers. There's the career that you want to pursue. So if it's talent, if it's business or whatever, you have to make yourself better. You have to focus. You have to look at any gaps and try to fill those gaps to perform better and produce a better result. But the parallel career is that you have to be noticed. And that parallel career means that you have to get people to see what you're doing, to be noticed, so that some of those barriers are removed by other people believing in you and giving you the chances that you've been working for. So it's no good being the best artist in the world locked up in a studio producing incredible work if if you haven't organised an opportunity for it to be seen and desired. Wow. That is so, so true. And it's true for companies with products, services, people trying to attract investors and for any individual as well. And especially in this day and age, I think of social media, we have a lot more opportunity to be seen, but also a lot more competition. And you really have to work on the two side by side. I can I can definitely second that being someone working, you know, in media and, and in content. <laughs> it doesn't matter what your content is like, how great it is, if you don't yeah. have a way to build an audience. The, the key thing is that, you know, even in dire moments, it's so much of this is actually between the years. You've got to keep thinking. You've got to keep thinking, okay, does this fundamental philosophy need adjusting or is it just that it needs to get noticed and sometimes you have to tweak it yes you know we would we would all very much like in any career path or any idea like to go from a to b that would be ideal but what i've experienced across many years is that it's more like a downhill skiing slalom race where you have to zigzag on the way to b and you have to go sideways and then back that way, hopefully making some progress. And then sometimes you'll find that you've zigzagged back up the hill and set back. <laughs> it's true. But, but, but it's just that, just reinforcing that approach mm-hmm. of keep thinking, keep looking, keep developing. Um, because if you don't, then you might as well throw the towel in. Yeah. yeah. So can you name some of those barriers or obstacles that you faced on your journey to becoming a race car driver and maybe just a few things that you did that helped you to overcome them? You know, when NASA was in the middle of its space program in the 60s, the the budgets involved were huge Mm -hmm. and they had to consistently apply to Congress to get those budgets passed. And they developed an expression saying, no bucks, no buck rogers. Well, we have a very similar situation. I've termed it in motor racing, no Sterling, no Sterling Moss. And Sterling Moss was one of our most famous racing drivers because motor racing is a financially dependent sport. Mm. 
performance is often limited or enhanced by exactly what kind of budget you've got. But every time these wheels go around, whether it be in a junior formula, a mid formula, or a top formula, it's an awful lot of money, and that money needs to be found. So sometimes, and I'm certainly not unique here, my progress in motor racing was desperately limited by being able to find the right sponsors to fund my current drive in whichever championship, or as importantly, the progression the following year as one works up what might be called the motor racing ladder from junior formula to international formula to world championship. So it all takes a huge amount of money and the determination involved in this is what I mean about the two careers is that on track when I first came into motor racing I was very very fast but but wild you know um, so it's important not to dull that fire but it is important to temper it to use it as a weapon and become more effective so there was a lot of things I was learning on track because I started incredibly late against many guys who had been racing for many years but that I had to make a decision I couldn't use that as an excuse because if I started motor racing as I did at the age of uh, cranky pretty much 21 mm. you know if I if I turned up with the attitude of saying I don't stand a chance these guys have been racing in carts since they were 10 I'm finished already yeah my job was to turn up and beat them yeah that's all there was to it there was no learning year it was a question of getting the money together to make that happen so as a young driver I had no track record to actually even get sponsorship so I got a job working on North Sea oil rigs for two years, wow. which paid me a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And that was two years working 12 to 14 hours a day, every day of the week, wow. and then a week off to get the money together to even start motor racing. So you have to be quite focused to live like that, yeah. to say, right. And even after all that time, the amount of money I had by motor racing standards to start yeah. was small. So I had to maximize it immediately. Mm. So I was able to do that. And I started winning consistently and then won the British Championship. Mm -hmm. But then motor racing things happened and I had a very, very bad accident, which Ooh. put me out for nearly a year after breaking my back. Ooh, yeah. So then back into career saying, okay, is my mind okay? Do I still want to do this? Can I still do this? Mm. Had to repair the body had to find some financing to actually even get back in. So it's challenges, challenges, challenges. Yeah. Now, the only thing that you do have to make sure is that fighting all the time like this, mm -hmm. you've got to make sure that there is a reward, that, yes. there, that actually this is something you do want to do. Yeah. So as long as the balance of scales kept tipping in that favor, saying, I am actually obsessed with doing this, and I absolutely believe that I can get to the top, then that was worth it. But what is incredibly important, and again, I'll open the net on this to many other dreams, aspirations, businesses, is that it is incredibly important to receive compliments. Because I think it was Oscar Wilde who once said, I can dine out on a good compliment for a month. The, what a compliment is, is that 
it reinforces your own opinion. It, it shows you that you're not deluded. It shows you that other people, it depends where the compliment comes from, of course, but the more respected the person who's paying you that compliment, mm. the more it means to you to say, thank you, I'm not wasting my time, I can do this. And that is is like a, an energy pack to me. Mm. Really understand other people believe in me, and it's still the same even today, if, if I've got an idea. <laughs> so, Excuse me. so, so did you did you actively build a support group around you, or or did it happen naturally? Was it something that you had to kind of you know build alongside building your your career? I I think that terms like support group were way too sophisticated for my approach when I was younger. <laughs> uh, I, I was just out knocking on doors trying to get people to think, hey, this guy's really hungry, we like him, we like the idea of going motor racing, here's a few hundred pounds, or here's a few thousand pounds, etc. Yeah. And then those people, I what I learned to do was actually think about them as well, not just take the money and say, I deserve it, mm-hmm. thank you very much, see ya. It's just to say, hey, they didn't have to do this really, mm-hmm. you know, they've yeah. done it for me. And, and now I want to find ways to pay them back. I want to make sure that they're happy that they're, that they're with me and continue to be happy that they're with me. And sometimes through no fault of their own, they couldn't do it the following year because their own business was suffering. But I always make sure or attempt to make sure that nobody has ever once had a bad taste in their mouth after dealing with me or being with me. And I like to believe it's the other way around that they've gone, hey, We've had a great time with Perry, and we're staying with him, or we've had to leave because we have to, that's it. So, support group, all this kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. there there wasn't a great deal of sophistication about my approach years ago. It was walk around an industrial state, knock on doors, chat up the receptionist or whatever to try and get a meeting with the director, (laughs) sit in front of them, tell them exactly how great motor racing is and where I'm going and just keep talking and engaging people and just see what can be done. But it was the imagination and it was that imagination to turn around and say, a lot of people say, oh, I can't get sponsorship. Well, did they walk around industrial estates all day, every day of the week, knocking on doors? Mm. Did they send letters out all the time? Did they make phone calls all the time? It's no stone unturned. Mm. It's the, this is what it needed. And there was only one person who was going to make that happen. However, it's an interesting word you use, support group. Because unbeknown to me, I guess I did start getting some fans who would actually keep their eye open for opportunities. And sometimes somebody would call up and say, hey, Perry, I've seen a picture of a racing car in the foyer of this particular company. Maybe they might be a good shot. So it was kind of um, people just thinking, hey, Maybe this is going to be great for Perry. But what I was doing on track was showing that I wasn't a dreamer. Yeah. Because they were then seeing that the fire inside me to fight to be fastest in qualifying, to fight for wins, or if something had gone wrong, to come through the field. And that is creating a reputation. Mm. And that is where you create belief and hopefully some popularity because people buy into that 
Yeah, if you were nowhere week after week after week, people will think you're deluded and that you're, it's not going to happen. That's for sure. That's for sure. There's got to be a degree of you've got the ability to do what you're trying to do. Yeah. Um. Yeah. As well as the the ambition and the 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 go-getter attitude and yeah, like that combination together. So what, what what ended up what ended up happening here is that I guess and it, it's really funny, you know, at my age now looking back to this guy who was just hell bent on succeeding <laughs> and. The thing is, I, I did become terribly well known very quickly in motor racing for my driving, but also for attitude. Oh. So, so people knew that I've got a really big sense of humour because I'm you know, I can be quite loud with the jokes or wisecracks or whatever. So that's just my personality. But but the other side of it is is that don't stand in my way. You know, mm. um, I I am going through anything and everything. And that really did get very, very well noticed mm-hmm. as as kind of a part of my character. So again, that was very good for me that people, even in Formula One teams, when I was very young, actually started knowing about this guy who was coming through and would not stop. So can you can you list any races? That uh, well, yeah. Can can you risk the race the races that you, you're most proud of? And was there ever an, an experience that you had on the racetrack that really stuck with you? <laughs> I mean, obviously, I know you did have the accident, but um, let's just say accidents aside, you know, something which yeah was just an outstanding memory. It it, it could even just be you liked that particular racetrack. I think that. I always got a real kick out of setting pole position, of being the fastest of the fastest in qualifying, and that that meant an awful lot to me. Um, And I guess my time in America was very good for that, because I turned up to the States with a very small team, with a small little car against multi, multi, multi multi-million dollar manufacturers, and, and started tearing them apart, you know, so that was noticed big time. Um... But I think that, you know, within all this is that sometimes there were races where I was in a car that was slow, hugely underfunded, mm-hmm. with no testing, and I'd finished 10th. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes, there was one particular race where I was in International Formula 3000, which is the level just below Formula 1, just below Formula 1. And the only way I could get out there was to jump in a car that was being run from a friend's back garden. Yeah, not big workshops, not you know mechanics and team personnel everywhere. And we'd turn up with just this car with no testing, taking on some of the biggest stars who went on to be Grand Prix winners. Mm. And when you're then fighting for pole position in that, and when you're then fighting for fifth or sixth place in that, that's when people are going, wow. Mm. So my philosophy here is that because so often I've been in a situation where it was impossible to win yeah. because of no testing, because of the car, because of no budget, mm-hmm. 
So it's impossible to win. It's impossible to stand on the top step of the podium. Yeah. However, my absolute attitude to this is slightly different. And again, it applies to so many other walks of life. Mm. Believe it or not, you can win. You can win by coming sixth. You can win by coming 10th. You can win by coming 14th. Because if nobody else has been able to qualify that kind of car for that race, what you've shown is you're the one who's qualified that car. You're the one who's fighting midfield. So if you never give up and if you show that attitude and you're dancing on the limit for every single corner, it gets noticed. So you have a reputational win. So you haven't taken the silverware home, but you've won reputationally. People are going, did you just see what he did with that piece of rubbish? (laughs) (laughs) And and they're the things that always drove me on because I, I absolutely knew I could deliver something special on the right situation. And that's what was happening in America as well. Yeah. Now, we were often not finishing races in America because of budget. The engine would let go, the gearbox would break, something like this. But I was leading against, we were on a budget of $300,000 against teams that were running on 15 to 20 million pounds. Mm. And I was setting pole positions or I was leading races. So it's just to say that sometimes you look the enormity of a task and to me sometimes that makes it even more fun yeah to just say i reckon i can turn this on its head you know Mm. i reckon i can make this happen yeah and that again leads me back to many of the business ideas that i've had something that attracts me gets my full focus and and there is that increased enjoyment about it not just being successful but actually making something happen that's quite creative mm. yeah wow that i really love really really love this it's um yeah doing the best you can with what you have is winning right that, not, that... not not just not just doing the best you can yeah being special oh yeah mm-hmm. you've got to be it's no good doing the best you can it's no good being good you've yeah. got to be special you know yeah and special you know there's a is it Lipsy's law of diminishing returns is that being special being precise the effort that is needed to be better and better and better goes up for just a small marginal gain mm. but that's what it takes that attitude that focus and you know I, I absolutely guarantee you something Marianne is that I've been around the block, really, big time, some huge ups, and I've had some massive downs. And I can guarantee you, absolutely guarantee you, I understand failure. Mm. I absolutely understand failure. I've failed at so many different moments in time. I have also, thank goodness, been quite successful at different moments in time. So I understand success as well. Mm. But the one thing I do not understand, does not compute, is mediocrity. Mm. You know? Yeah. I'm, I'm in it. And if I'm in it, I know I can win or lose. But I don't stand on the sidelines. You know? Yeah. This is it's absolutely everything to me, 
to, you know, I'm representing myself and I expect, I expect something special from me. And sometimes my, my disappointments are when I believe that I've, I've actually not performed mm. well enough. There have been those moments or where I've not, where I've got something wrong or made a mistake. And that haunts me, absolutely haunts me. And I go over it and over it and over it again and again to try and make sure that I don't repeat the mistakes. Yeah, well, that's uh, making sure we don't repeat mistakes is an important part of learning, right? <laughs> well, I, I'm not saying I've always been, been successful at not repeating mistakes, <laughs> believe me. I'm, yeah. I'm far from perfect. Okay. <laughs> well, we we all are. Uh, so uh, wow, I, I feel motivated just listening to this. This is um, yeah, it, it's it's amazing, amazing determination and attitude. Yeah. All right, I've I've got a, a random question. What's your favorite car, and why? It doesn't have, it can be any car. It doesn't have to be racing, but yeah. Well. It's funny because it's really difficult for me to come in to just say one because, you know, there are, there are so many different cars for so many different occasions, you know. So, yeah, if you've got a real low-level um, sports car, it's no, no good for taking the family out for the day and getting the shopping, etc. you know. So there are different cars for different strokes. Conversely, there are also um, a lot of classic cars I absolutely adore, um, right up until the point where you actually drive them, because they're just no good anymore, you know, even even the top cars of the 1960s will be completely destroyed by a 1.1 Ford Fiesta nowadays or whatever, you know, so life has moved on so much. If I'm going to give you one answer, at the moment, and I had one of these, it was a Ferrari 458. Okay. Yeah. So I do still have this kind of penchant for Ferraris. They, they mean something to me. And when I kicked off in motor racing, it was my dream to one day be driving for Ferrari in Formula One. Mm-hmm. That bit of the dream didn't come true. Uh, but I did use to speak to them a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's the, the kind of racing driver in me. Yeah is but the why i love that car so much is that it does what it says it can do it is incredibly precise it is incredibly good looking mm. and of course there is the image around it that you feel a bit proud to be around a ferrari yeah, you know? yeah. So all of those sensory things for me stack up and it's emotionally loaded but it's also clinically loaded that the car really does something special where there are some supercars that are incredibly expensive, where personally, uh, I think they're quite a disappointment. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess uh, we know what what may be on your wish list then for Christmas. <laughs> a new Ferrari. A new Ferrari. Yes. Which what? Yes, Santa. What color? What color? <laughs> oh, it has to be red. Red, red. I like yeah, that. And, I... And, and on top of that, Santa does approve of red as well. You know. So, yes. Um, I had an image of a red Ferrari in my mind as you were talking about it. Somehow the, the color that you, that you, I don't know, I, I associate, I think people associate with Ferraris. Oh, totally. So, um, yeah, let, let's talk about Christmas uh, coming up soon. Do you have any old traditions or rituals that are passed on from your family that, that you know, your, your grandparents or that you 
do today? No, it's it is really strange because I, I love Christmas and I love seeing friends and I love seeing family, but but Christmas as a time of year also carries frustrations with me because commercially to me it seems as if so many people just switch off at the beginning of december and just say oh christmas is coming so we're not going to make any decisions on something and, and i find that a complete waste of time yeah. and then the other the other side of christmas is that similarly there are frustrations with trying to get commercial decisions because people say oh well we've just got back we'll look at it in the middle or late of january <laughs> so so for me personally i'm looking at going my goodness, these people have just destroyed five or six weeks out of the calendar. Well, okay, unfair, you've got to take a week off for Christmas at, or close to that within that frame. Mm. But with Christmas itself, the other fear for a racing driver yeah. is that, and, and I'll be very careful about this phrase, mm-hmm. is that most drivers, most of the time, are out of work at the end of each season. Oh. So again, Christmas, uh, you know, I just remember being haunted thinking, what is happening next year? Because there were very, very few times in my life across a Christmas period that I had any idea what was going to be happening for the following year, or as we say, the following season, or in, in reality, a job of racing a race car, you know? Yeah. So it was always that. But but it was a question of really not letting that pressure show to the rest of the family mm. and trying to contain it and just be seen to smile and have a good time. Mm. So one of our traditions is that I'm very fortunate that a very good friend of mine is one of the most famous turkey farmers in the country. Oh, yeah. and, <laughs> that's, and that's Paul Kelly. So he has Kelly's bronze. Yeah. And he's always in the news about this or that or working with Jamie Oliver mm-hmm. and Paul and I have been friends since we were teenagers so the tradition is that every year we get a fabulous turkey from Paul you know wow. and the tradition is that there have been literally once or twice across the last five years of being with my wife where we've not been here for Christmas day because I, I prefer Christmas when he comes here so and then that way I've got a captive audience to listen to my jokes <laughs> so um, well that it sounds like you're, you're pretty fortunate though to have a to be getting the best turkey from uh, one of the best turkey farmers and who cooks who cooks the two stuffs and cooks the turkey that is a really easy answer Karen <laughs> okay <laughs> So that there's no ongoing fights in the family over. Who? Oh no no no. All right no. all right. Who sometimes, sometimes I sometimes I'll do dessert, you know. So I can <laughs> I'm, I'm not bad at making creme brulee, custard, Ooh. ice cream, um, some tarts, things like that. So um, but I find it difficult to stand um, a, a workbench for too long because back injuries. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and it's funny, I, I also find that that pain comes in a lot earlier uh, if I have to do the washing up as well. Oh, <laughs> sounds like it's a psychological pain. 
It's like yeah, the psychological pain of washing dishes. I know. I think that's actually been noted. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, making sure that there's you know plenty of wine around. Um, making sure we see friends, making sure we see family, and um, yeah, the, getting a, uh, a real big Christmas tree. No, I love it. Uh, decorating that, and then yeah, it's uh, it's a really nice it's a nice time of year. But but I do have to try and separate it and, and put my uh, ambitions for January and the future each year. To one side. Mm, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I really love. I'm not, I'm not very good at relaxing, to be completely honest. <laughs> that, that is a, that is definitely a flaw. Yeah. Ho- ho- hopefully, all the wine that goes around helps. Um, no, I, I, I love Christmas in, in London. And wine medicine. Yeah, wine, wine medicine. Malt, malt wine, malt wine. Sorry, Marianne, I interrupted. What did you say? No, I, I was just saying that I, I love Christmas in London. I love the, the season and how seriously people here take it because it's a very, I don't know, you know, it, you know, it's a city full of ambitious people, but it's just, it's really nice to have at least one time of year when people get more festive, lights go up everywhere and yeah. join in yeah. for singing Christmas carols. It's a way of building some bonds and, you know, some sense of shared tradition and community that is often lacking in, in a big bustling city um so yeah that, that that's very nice so yeah. be, before we before we close uh the, the readership is climate tech entrepreneurs and yeah entrepreneurs who are innovating who are bringing amazing new things to the market to really transition to a circular and net zero economy uh and of course just like you being in the racetrack they encounter a lot of obstacles with finding investors with going to market so what 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 would you say um you know would be your 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 top tip or top three tips that you would you would just say to them based on your your own experiences i imagine that they're passionate people i imagine that they've they've got their own dream they've seen a niche in the market but the thing I would sometimes suggest is that to consistently reevaluate is that are you on the right path? Do you have the right service? Do you have the right approach? And perhaps sometimes if you're struggling, again, be creative. Understand what else is out there. And perhaps sometimes a collaboration could be just as valuable to have 50% of something going forward that's 100% of nothing if you're struggling to get it out there. Mm. You know, I was, I'll was i give you an analogy on something. Is that I was driving for quite a famous guy called Ron Toronac, and we were talking about how to set the car up. So again, it's like setting a business up. You're trying to get maximum performance. And Ron wanted to put a new piece of bodywork on the front of the car. And I came in and after a few laps and I said, no, it's made the car worse. And he said, you know something, that may not be true. That may be true for those two laps, 
but we may need to now alter some other things around it mm-hmm. to get that to work. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that always stayed with me to just think, hey, you know something? Just because you've made that move doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Maybe other things need to be now thought about and adapted. But it's just what I keep saying. Keep thinking. I mean, there's been an explosion in green tech. Yeah, yeah, explosion, yeah. Sometimes you really have to face facts and just say, am I just one of many people that's chasing this same solution or this same problem or with the same offering and we're underfunded, you know? So is that actually going to work? So there needs to be some kind of personal honesty sometimes. Conversely, you might be convinced that nobody has actually seen this. Yeah. So the job then is to make sure that they do, the same as we talked about before, that you're funded, that, that other people are suitably engaged with what you've got and believe in you, or to even think in terms of collaboration. Yeah. But one of the things that, one of the tricks that people can do is that thing I talked about compliments earlier, is to just really get the exposure to certain industry leaders. And maybe they need to work on that for them to understand that an industry leader turns around and says, you're onto something here. And then you feel energized. And maybe that industry leader then promotes it. Maybe it's just keep thinking about how to get it out there, have you got it right, who to bring in play, and you're not necessarily hostage to just go in one direction. Absolutely, yeah. But be prepared because green tech entrepreneur, it sounds glamorous. Racing driver sounds glamorous. It is full of problems, full of difficulties. (laughs) And it's going to be, ultimately, the similarities between us all, those similarities are passion, determination and having a unique selling point finding a way through and surviving disappointment merry christmas green tech entrepreneurs because i'm afraid that that is probably the 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 go forward that i'm looking at yeah well yeah no that that's so true i love what you said about partnerships and thinking about yeah collaboration I, i actually read that one of the key reasons for failure is when people is when there's a single founder that's one of the you know when when people analyze why entrepreneurs succeed or fail that's one of the top reasons and most of the companies where it appears like there was a single founder they actually did have some sort of a team behind them (laughs) uh, that helped to to make it possible so yeah i'm a big believer in that too yeah i tell you one thing is that and maybe this might resonate with some of the um, green tech CEOs that might read this, is that I'm, I'm nearly always convinced, nearly, nearly always convinced about what I'm doing, okay? And that's what gives me the drive to do it. However, and I guarantee you this, is that I'm not beyond stopping and listening to somebody. Mm. Now, a lot of the time, I would have already have covered what they've said. I would already have thought about their comments. But just sometimes, somebody comes up with an idea that just says, Perry, change direction, or tweak this, or have a look at this. I have got 
zero pride problems about accepting that piece of advice or doing it because I want the deal to be right. I'm genuinely not so worried that I'm right. So whatever is out there to make that deal right, I will keep looking at and add in, add into my approach with the passion, but to just go, hey, and this is what I mean about looking at the market. Can I learn? Can I think better? And can we come up with something that will win? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be here all week. Um, so, what I know you published a book uh, recently, and when is when is that coming out, or is is it already out? And where can people find it? Well, the the book, the actual book, came out quite a long time ago. It's called Flat Out Flat Road. Yes. And um, and it's actually become one of the best selling motor racing books ever. Wow. So, yeah, that's good. People felt sorry for me, Marianne. <laughs> well, there's there's um, one way to get attention, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm going to change the name of the title to help me. <laughs> but, but, um, but what I did recently is I brought it out as an audio book. 